this morning I want to uh, talk about is um, a message that uh, I titled Sharing Your Faith, a Privilege, Responsibility, or Burden. And if you think about that, what is sharing your faith? What does it mean to share the hope of the world that is in Jesus Christ? Is it a privilege that God's given us? Is it a responsibility that he has entrusted to us? Or do we see it as a burden? And are we scared? And is there fear? And are there things that, that, uh, that keep us from sharing our faith? In fact, the statistics say that 95% of Christians don't actively share their faith. 95% of us. That's pretty scary. In fact, another statistic that I read is even more astounding. And this was a couple years ago. It says 53,000 people are leaving the church in the West every week. More people are leaving the church than coming to it. Why? The fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of offending people. There are so many things. Maybe it's just the apathy. Maybe it's just, what's the point? Do we really need to share? I remember when I came to Christ, I was a senior in high school, and, and uh, you may remember in the little video testimony, there was a youth pastor that came, took me under his wing, and he, and he started uh, sharing with me what a relationship with Christ was all about, and until that point, I thought being a good person was good enough. If we just did the right things and avoided the big sins, I thought I'd go to heaven when I died, and I got to do what I wanted to do in this world, and, and he showed me that having a relationship with Christ was very different, and that I needed to understand forgiveness, and I needed to understand that I needed that forgiveness, that I wasn't perfect. And, and so he led me to Christ. I became a Christian as I started to grow my faith. I became passionate about wanting to share that faith. And maybe you can remember that first time when you understood the gospel for the first time. And the excitement of understanding what God had done for you. And as that passion started to grow, the one person in my life that I wanted to share with more than anybody else was my father. My dad was my golf instructor, my biggest cheerleader as I played college golf and I went on to play professional golf. And when I was a senior in high school, my dad didn't know Christ. My dad struggled with alcoholism. My dad was as far away from the Lord as possible. And God put this burden on my heart to want to share this hope with him. And as I stepped out of my comfort zone as a 16-year-old kid, and I shared, my dad just said, I don't want any part of that. How dare you, a 16-year-old, tell me what I should believe? And I got rejected. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. And maybe that's what keeps us from sharing. But I'm so glad that I didn't stop sharing. And eventually God led me into full-time ministry so that I could take this hope with the world. And, and God's given me many opportunities to share Christ with people. And I've seen people reject it and I've seen people accept it. But there is no greater joy than to be able to pray with somebody as they invite Christ into their life and to receive the gift that God has given them. One of my dad's buddies that... He used to go down to the country club and, and drink his vodka and tonics with. Just a couple of years ago, was dying of cancer. And I know we have many people struggling with that disease here. And his wife called me up and she said, can you come visit Skeets? That's what his name was. He probably only has a couple more weeks to live. And so I said, sure. And I came over and I met with Skeets. And I said, Skeets, do you know what's going to happen after you die? And he said, no. He says, you know me. I'm the guy who thinks that lightning's going to strike when I step foot in a church. And I looked at him and I said, Skeets, do you know that Jesus came to save people who thought that lightning would strike when they stepped foot in a church? That's who he came to seek and to save. That's why he died on a cross, was for those people. Skeets went on to pray to receive Christ that day. 
And that was the greatest joy. Next to me coming to faith myself was praying with somebody to watch them receive what God had done for them and to enter into a relationship with the living God and to say, yes, I have received eternal life. And eternal life doesn't just start when we die. Eternal life starts right now. And as he prayed to receive Christ, and I left that day, I said, Keith, I'm going to come back and visit you again next week. But you know what? His wife called me up the next day and said, Skeets died in his sleep last night. It was as if God brought me to that moment at that time to be a conduit of his grace and his love to a person who needed it. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to say, yes, I will step out of that comfort zone and I will share when God gives me that opportunity? Jesus himself started his ministry by telling Andrew and Peter, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I will give you a purpose beyond yourself. You will find fulfillment in me and you will share with others. And then he ended his ministry, bookends, and he says, what? Go and make disciples of all nations. And right before he ascended into heaven, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Why aren't we doing it? We're going to look at a passage of scripture. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hands and we'll get one to you. And we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That goes into a little bit more detail about what this means and who we are in Christ. So grab a Bible, pull out your outline, and we're going to dive in here. And as you're getting a Bible, if you want to look at your, your, little, uh, your little handout, I put a few quotes on here. And, and the last one was written by Rebecca Pippard, who wrote Out of the Salt Shaker, Into the World. And it's a great book on relational evangelism, if you ever want to read. And she says this. She said, evangelism training is simply calling believers to live as true Christians. When we live as we are called to be, evangelism can't help but happen. The Apostle Paul speaks to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it's page 818 in your uh, church Bible. And starting verse 13, Paul says this. He says, if we are out of our mind, meaning crazy for the gospel, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he, Christ, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. There's the purpose beyond ourself. Verse 16, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And here's the verse I want to camp on. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness 
of God. There is a lot to unpack there, and I won't be able to go through verse by verse everything in this passage, but I want to camp on that new identity that we have received. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, and we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. What's an ambassador? It's a representative. My wife was an international studies major. She worked in D.C., and she sent ambassadors across the country. What did they do? They went into a foreign country to be a representative, to represent their homeland in this foreign country. They weren't there to impose their views on this foreign country. They were there to develop relationships. We are Christ's ambassadors. What does that imply? We're not from this world. Our home, our citizenship is in heaven. And yet God has sent us into this world for a very specific purpose, to represent him to a lost and hurting world. And what's the message that we're to share? A message of reconciliation. We see reconciliation everywhere. Almost every book and every movie that we see has some form and some theme of reconciliation in it. I have a six-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. Most of the movies I watch these days are cartoons and from Disney. The other movies I get to watch are romantic comedies with my wife. Sorry, guys. I know we have to do it. And uh, every single romantic comedy, what is the theme? Boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl. Boy does something stupid, girl breaks up with boy, and then boy comes crawling back to her, asks for forgiveness, and girl, though she shouldn't forgive him, she forgives him, and then they live happily ever after, right? Is that every single movie that we watch? Oh, it drives me crazy. But what is the greatest story of reconciliation? It's the story of God creating mankind in his own image, and he walked with him in the garden, and he had a perfect perfect relationship with him and he said it's very good and what happened man and woman both did something stupid they said we don't need god we want to be our own god and they took the fruit and what happened god had to separate them from his presence because he's a perfect and he's a holy god and he said i can't have imperfection in my presence anymore and so he kicked them out of the garden and they were no longer to have that perfect relationship that god intended but god didn't stop there He says, I love you so much that I'm going to send my son into this world and I'm going to fix the problem. And I'm going to bring reconciliation. I'm going to bring two people that were in conflict and hostility, enemies, the Bible even says. And I'm going to bring it back together and I'm going to reconcile you to me. How am I going to do that? I'm going to do it through the work of Christ. It is in Christ and through Christ that this reconciliation takes place. In fact, in verse 21, he says it really interestingly. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a switch going on. When Jesus went to that cross, he says, I take all of your sin upon me. And I give you, I impute to you, I credit to you my righteousness. It doesn't make sense. I don't fully understand it, but that's what the Bible teaches us. Great illustration of this is true story. My uh, work associate, who lives in Dallas, went to Dallas Seminary, and he was in a theology class. And in this class, he had to go memorize a bunch of theological terms and come back to class and take this test. This was his first theology quiz. And my buddy's not the smartest guy in the, in the, uh, in, in, in the class, and so he didn't study real hard for it. And he thought, oh, I can wing it. And he comes back, and he's writing down the answers to every one of these theological terms. And, and then the professor says, okay, we're going to grade your papers in class. And so he reads the answer to the first question, and he says, somebody raises their hand and says, I wrote this. Do I get credit for it? And the professor says, no. 
It's not exactly what I just told you. It's wrong. Everybody kind of goes, wow, isn't this seminary? Aren't we studying to be pastors? Where's the grace? He reads the answer to the next one. Somebody else raises their hand and says, this is almost word for word. I should get credit for this, shouldn't I? And the professor says, no, I told you, if it's not word for word, exactly what I said, it's wrong. And they're all looking around going, who is this guy? And so he ends up grading the rest of their papers. My buddy gets two out of 10 on his first theology quiz. He's going, oh my gosh, this is going to be a long year. And then he asks the class, the professor says, how many people got five out of 10 right on these five, 10 theological terms? There were three people that got five out of 10. There were two people that got seven out of 10. And there was one person who got nine out of 10. Nobody got a hundred percent. And he looked at that guy that got nine out of 10. And he says, man, you really studied your tail off. Great job. And then he wrote on the board, the grading scale. And he said, 10 out of 10, a plus hundred percent. Anything less than that F <laughs> who was the most upset? The guy that got nine out of 10. He's like, how can I get the same score as this guy that didn't study anything? Got two out of 10. That's not fair. And then the professor says, okay, I'll make a deal with you. I took the same test while you were taking it. And guess what? I got a hundred percent. They're like, great. He says, but if you don't like your score, you can cross the name off the top of your page and you can write in my name and you can receive my score on your test. And then he smiled and he said, isn't that what Christ has done for us? If we cross the name off the top of our paper of life and we write in Jesus Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ. We become completely forgiven and we receive something that we don't deserve. Some of us are nine out of tens in the morality department and we say we don't need God. But if you're not a 10 out of 10, you need God and you need his forgiveness. And he says, I want to offer that to you. If you're a two out of 10 in life, you can stand before that perfect and holy God one day and hold up your test score or you can hold up the score that Jesus Christ lived. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't. And he said, I died for you. And the grave didn't hold him. He rose from that grave. And then he offers us new life. And he says, if anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We now have this reconciliation with God. And he says, I want you to take this message to the world. That is the greatest privilege that we can have. As Christians, is to share this message, but we're not doing it. More people are leaving this church than sharing this message of hope and reconciliation. Do we really believe it's good news? Do we really believe it can change us? Do we really believe that it can touch the deepest struggles that we have in this world? Does it really bring satisfaction? Do we really believe that having a relationship with God is better than not? What if you're a doctor? And you come up with the cure for cancer. Are you not going to want to share that with the world? Of course you are. What if people say, I don't believe you really have that cure. I don't believe that's really going to work. Are you going to stop sharing it? If you're offending somebody because they think that you got it all figured out, are you going to stop sharing that? There is a disease that is killing every single one of us. And every single one of us is infected, and it's a 100% mortality rate, and it's called sin. And it is separating us from the living God who created us for a relationship. Why aren't we sharing that cure, that cure that only comes from the blood of Jesus Christ? Bill Hybels, Church of Willow Creek, wrote a book called Walk Across the Room. 
And he said, Jesus walked across the cosmos. He gave up the glory and the worship of the angels to come down and humble himself to die on a cross to save us. And he says, if Jesus was willing to do that for us, are we willing to walk across the room to engage in a relationship with someone that doesn't know their Savior? He says, if you really believe in the redeeming and transforming power of God's presence in a person's life, then the single greatest gift you can give someone is an explanation of how to be rightly connected to him. Do we believe it? Does the love of Christ, as Paul says in verse 14, compel us to share Remember the first time again that you understood God's love and his amazing grace that was given to you. As new Christians, we often have this passion to want to share. But yet the longer we walk with God and the longer we've been Christians, we start to get complacent. And we come to church every Sunday and we, we worship and we, commun- we have community. And then we go into our small groups, our Bible studies throughout the week. And we like our little holy huddles. What did Jesus do? He says, I came to seek and save the lost. When he looked out at the crowds, he says, they're harassed and they're helpless and they're lost and they need a savior. Do we look at people in our lives with that same lens? Do we see the brokenness and the need that is out there? In that same book, Bill Hybels went on to say, what if Jesus was living today? And we asked him, Jesus, what do you dream about And this is what he wrote. He says, perhaps Jesus would say this. He said, you know, I dream that someday places of worship will be filled with people who lay awake at night concerned about the human beings my father created, who care about broken bodies and broken souls and hopeless futures and hell-bound eternities. I dream of the day when people who gather in my name are so filled with the love of the father that they go out and they spread his love and extend healthy hands to withered hands, praying, coaching, and encouraging them to walk in fullness of life. I dream of worship centers filled with radically loving, outwardly focused, Christ-sharing people. Does this describe Bridgeway Christian Church? I hope it does, but I think we can do a better job. I think that we can take this message and we can be more intentional with the people that don't know Christ. And I think that we have a privilege and we have a responsibility to be outwardly focused, radically loving, Christ-sharing people. I want to take the rest of our time just to get practical. And I want to share a few principles and a few things that can help you as you engage with your sphere of influence. It was so awesome up here to have a person that we can pray for and commission and send out to the mission field. But remember, when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, it starts with Jerusalem. Who are the people right now in our sphere of influence? Some of us are called to go overseas, but not all of us are. But we are all called to be his ambassadors where we're at. Every single one of us. A couple principles that can help us, free us from the fear that keep us from sharing our faith. Principle number one, evangelism is a process. Evangelism is a process. And the second principle is that God is in control of the results. Think about that. Evangelism is often talked about in terms of farming. Some people are cultivating the soil. Some people are planting the seeds. Some people are reaping the harvest. But it's a process. And did you know that it takes seven to ten times for somebody to actually hear the gospel before they respond to it? 
We don't know if we're the first person that's shared it with them, the third person, the fifth person, or the tenth person. But all we're called to do is keep cultivating that soil, developing the relationship, sharing God's love with those people, planting the seeds, and maybe God will give us a chance to reap the harvest, but he's in control of the results. That frees us up. We don't have to fear anymore. St. Francis of Assisi said this. He said, preach the gospel always, and when necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? It's a great quote. I love that quote. But I'm going to take it a step farther. I'm going to say it's always necessary to use words. Paul writes to the Romans and he says, salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. And he goes on to say that unless we send people to share the good news, they won't hear it and they won't believe. Yes, we need to love. Yes, we need to serve. Yes, we need to develop relationships. Yes, they have to see the love of Christ in us. Yes, we have to be the gospel before they share the gospel. People don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. So as we think about this evangelism process, and God invites us to be a part of that process, how good is that? He could have come up with a lot of other ways to share this message, yet he said, I'm going to choose to use you guys. Why? Because you guys are the most effective way. Because I know you're imperfect. I know that you make mistakes. These other people need to hear the same thing. They need to know that it's imperfect people who need a perfect God. To bring fulfillment, to bring life, to bring forgiveness of sins. I want to use you. Jesus said to his disciples, you guys are going to do far greater things than I did. This is the Son of God sharing that. How is that possible? Because he said... You're 12, I'm one, and I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live inside of you, and you're now going to go out, and you're going to share this hope, and other people are going to place their trust in me, and then they're going to go out, and they're going to share, and 2,000 years later, we are still called to share that same message and pass it on as his ambassadors. What a privilege that he said, I'm going to use you. It's not a burden. This is good news. Do we believe it's good news? Do we believe it's the hope of the world? Again, start understanding your Jerusalem, number one, and then start praying for those people, those people in your sphere of influence, whether it's your work associates, whether it's your neighbors, whether it's the people in your mom's groups, whether it's the PTA group, whether it's the people you're coaching in Little League Baseball. I don't know what your sphere of influence is, but like I said before, it's really sad the longer we walk with Christ, the less Christians, non-Christians we actually know. Isn't that true? Sometimes it's really hard. If we've been a Christian for 25 years, all of our friends are Christians. And Jesus said, go to the hurting. Be intentional. We need to be intentional about that. My wife and I moved into a new neighborhood three years ago. And we said, how can we be outwardly focusing? How can we get to know our neighbors? And my wife's a lot smarter than I am. She came up with some really cool ideas. And we we hosted a pancake 4th of July breakfast and parade. And we had all the kids dress up their bikes on little uh, uh, red, white, and blue. And we circled around our neighborhood. And we came back and we served pancakes with blueberries, strawberries, and whipped cream. It was red, white, and blue. It was really cool. And uh, we did that just to develop relationships, just to get to know people. We did that the next year. Then we did a barbecue on Labor Day and and had a kickball tournament. I mean, think of creative ways that we can get out of our bubbles, our Christian bubbles, and develop relationships with other people. 
And as we were doing that, we didn't have necessarily opportunities to share the four spiritual laws with each one of those people. Jesus didn't share the four spiritual laws with everybody he came in contact with, but he met them where they were at. He developed relationships. He started asking questions. He discovered their stories. And then he met them where they were at. Do we believe the gospel can meet people where they are at? When we start understanding their stories, we start understanding their struggles, we can come along and we can love them. And we can share the hope that Christ offers us. So we understand our influence. We start praying. Because who's in control of the results? God is. And we start developing these relationships over common ground. And we start sharing what we know to be true. Evangelism is a process. And we get to be part of this journey. I had a buddy that I knew since third grade. His name was Chris Simro. Chris Simro was a good friend. We played sports. We played golf. We played everything together. I became a Christian my senior year in high school. And as I said before, I had this passion I want to share. And when I shared it with Chris, he didn't have any interest either. He respected my belief system, but he said, you know what? It's not for me. And over the years... As I went on to school and he went away to a different school, we keep in touch sporadically. Every once in a while he heard that I went into full-time ministry. He'd ask a few questions here and there, but he wasn't interested. Then I heard he got married and then got divorced and then he moved to Alabama. And through a series of events, I lost touch with him. And then he called me up one day, 10 years after we had graduated from college. And he said, Steve, I met a girl and she invited me to church. And this pastor started meeting with me. And I just want to let you know I accepted Christ into my life. We don't know. It's a process. We plant seeds along the way. We pray and we leave it in God's hands. And then God brings other people into people's lives. Then there's another time through my ministry with College Golf Fellowship, I meet this guy from St. Mary's College. And he hears the gospel at an outreach event that we shared. And and he said, man, I want to learn more about that. I sent him a few books. I talked to him two times on the phone. And after an hour-long conversation on the phone, I'm ready to hang up. And he goes, isn't there some prayer I'm supposed to pray to invite Christ into my life? And I'm like, who are you, God? How many times do we try and minister and we try and minister and we try and share and they're not interested? And then we have a guy say, isn't there some prayer I'm supposed to pray? I mean, that is unbelievable. God is in control of the results. We just need to be faithful to share. A couple more practical things. And just so you guys know, I teach a relational evangelism class through the Blueprints um, discipleship courses. I'm going to teach another one in, in February. So if you guys want to hear more of this and just learn practical tools to develop these relationships, come to that. But here are a couple more things that I think are really helpful. When we are sharing and we're getting to know their stories and we're hearing who they are and where they're coming from and we're being the gospel, be aware of three barriers that keep people from faith. Barrier number one, the emotional barrier. What's the emotional barrier? That's the barrier that people have these negative views of Christianity or organized religion because of their past experiences. Or they think all Christians are hypocrites and judgmental. So I don't want any part of that. Or they grew up with, a, with, a, with parents who were very legalistic and they forced them to go to church all their life. And when they had their own choice, they said, I don't want a part of that anymore. All I saw was God as a God with a giant fly swatter in heaven. Hit me over the head every time he did something wrong. I don't want a God like that. And they have this emotional barrier. Maybe they knew some mature Christian who had an affair with somebody else. And they said, if Christians are like that, why do I want to be a part of that? If we start hearing emotional barriers coming up as we're talking, what are we to do? Love them. Jesus said, 
All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We need to show them something different. We need to show them the reality of who Jesus really is, not the misconception that they've placed in their mind because of what they've experienced so far. We need to show them the reality by living it out in front of them. Barrier number two, the intellectual barrier. That's the barrier of people who want the answers. Is the Bible really reliable? Can I really believe what it says? Is it true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Did he really rise from the dead? Don't science and, and, and religion conflict with each other? What happened? Why, did, why, why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? These are great intellectual questions that we have to wrestle with. And we should wrestle with them. We can't just sweep them under the rug. And there are people that have honest questions. And what does Peter say? In First Peter, he says, always be prepared to give an answer. But he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Not as a know-it-all and say, I've got it all figured out. We can never answer every single question that somebody has. But we can read and we can study and we can do research and we can give good books and we can take blueprints classes about apologetics. Some great books just to help you on apologetics that answer some of these questions. More Than a Carpenter, written by Josh McDowell. Outspoken atheist, set out to disprove Christianity, became a Christian in the process. And he said, the evidence is overwhelming that Jesus really was who he said he was. Lee Strobel. Chicago Tribune editor, outspoken atheist, set out to disprove Christianity, became a Christian in the process. He wrote The Case for Christ, The Case for a Creator, and The Case for Faith. He says, this stuff is true. It's rooted in history. There are good answers. No, we can't answer every question. And we need to be able to say that. Because I think people respect that when we say, I don't know, I wrestle with that one too. But if we want to break down that barrier, we've got to have the ability to do so. There was another young man named John Darby who came to a college golf fellowship retreat and he admitted, he said, I only came to this retreat because I got to hang out with two-time U.S. Open champion Lee Jansen. And he said, hey, if I got a free retreat to go hang out with him, why wouldn't I do it? I could put up with the religious junk. And he says, I thought Christians were so different than me, judgmental, hypocritical. They didn't have the struggles that I had. They couldn't relate to me. And then I came to this retreat and I saw something different. I saw guys who really genuinely cared for each other. College guys who could have fun without partying and drinking alcohol. Guys who actually accepted me for who I was in my own belief system, even though it was different than my own. And I was so intrigued after those four days that I wanted to investigate whether this Jesus guy was really real. And so he started a process. So the emotional barrier started coming off. And then he started meeting with our staff. And he started asking questions. And he started reading some of these books. His dad is actually a biology professor at the university of san francisco atheist naturalist doesn't believe that we need to have a god and his son is now investigating whether this stuff is true the intellectual barriers start coming down and he finally got to a place where he said you know what i can't deny jesus really is who he said he is that he hung on that cross for me and he died for me and john darby placed his trust in jesus christ there is no greater joy than seeing a person come to know our Savior. And God says, I want to use you. Barrier number three, the volitional barrier. What's volitional barrier? That's the pride. That's something in our heart that says, I don't care if it's true. I don't care if it makes sense. I don't want to be part of God. I don't want to believe. I want to be my own God. I want to do my own thing. I don't want to be held accountable to a God in heaven. I want to do it on my own. We all know people like that. That was my father. 
He had a volitional barrier, pride, keeping him. How do we break down that barrier? We start praying. Who's responsible for the results? God. Paul says over and over and over, pray that a door may be opened, that I may declare the message of the gospel clearly. Are we praying for people that we love and that we desperately want to know our Savior? Prayer works. God hears our prayers. Prayer isn't just preparation for ministry. Prayer is the ministry. God changes people's hearts. Jesus himself said, no one will come to me unless the Father has enabled him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? We're just ministers. Apollos planted the seed I watered, but God made it grow. There's a young man from William Jessup University, he plays on the golf team there, and he came this last fall, transferred from a school in Idaho to play college golf. Not a believer. William Jessup is a very strong, committed Christian school. His eyes were open to something that he had never seen before, and he was pretty taken back by it. And we started meeting and started talking, started sharing the gospel with him, started breaking down the misconceptions. A few times I'd ask him, where are you at in your faith? Do you think Jesus really is who he said he was? Yeah, I'm starting to see that. This is something different than I've heard before. This grace thing is quite different than I've ever heard before. But I'm just not ready. I'm just not ready. And I heard that over and over and over as I met with him. But we just kept meeting and answering questions, planting more seeds, cultivating the soil. Every time I asked him, no, I'm just, there's just something there. That volitional barrier was keeping him. Well, the week before Christmas, he came over to my house and we met. And he had been there a few times. And I told my daughter, my six-year-old daughter, I said, Casey's coming over. And she was all excited because she loved Casey. And I said, you know, Casey still doesn't know Jesus. Jesus doesn't live in his heart. And so I asked my six-year-old daughter, I said, will you pray for Casey that he would invite Jesus into his heart? And my daughter said, yes. Can I pray for him when he gets here? And I said, that might make him feel a little uncomfortable. But would you pray for him while you and your brother play in the other room and I meet with him in our other living room? And she said, I'll pray, Daddy. And so I met with Casey and we went through the different gospel accounts of the Christmas story. And again, I kind of threw out the question, where are you at in your journey? Anything different? And he said, yeah, I'm ready. I said, ready? Ready for what? He said, I'm ready to place my faith in Christ. And I said, are you kidding me? I told him my daughter was in the other room praying for him right now. And I got to pray with this young man as he placed his faith in Christ. And then he went into the other room to where my daughter was. And he looked my daughter in the eyes and he said, thank you for praying for me. God heard your prayers. I just invited Jesus into my heart. And to see the eyes of my daughter light up and the smile go from ear to ear. That her prayer was heard by God and another person came in to the kingdom of God. We have the greatest privilege in the world. God says, I don't expect you to save people. I've got that one covered. But I do ask you to introduce people to that person who does save. We're not being reconciled to a set of doctrines. We are being reconciled to a person into a living relationship with the living God. And he says, will you... Be my ambassadors. That's his invitation to each one of us. Let's make it really practical as we close. 
I want you guys, when you leave this place, go have lunch, sit down with your wife, your husband, your kids, and write down the names of people in your sphere of influence that don't know Christ. And I want you to write those names down, and I want you to start praying for those people. This is a new year, 2011. Write down those people and start praying every day, whether that's at breakfast, whether that's before you go to sleep, whether that's at dinner. Get your family together and make this a team effort. And start praying daily that God would start taking down those barriers, that God would give you boldness, that God would give you the ability to connect with him on common ground and develop relationships with these people. And as we pray and as we start to see God work, what if God did something huge? There's about 800 people in this room. Let's say on average we have 750 people that come to a service. We have four services that are going to hear this message. That's 3,000 people hearing this message. If each one of us prayed for four people this year, what if just one of those people came to Christ in the next year? That's easy math. That's 3,000 new believers. What if two of those four people we prayed for come to Christ in the next year? That is 6,000 new believers. Can we have an impact in this world? Yes, we can, because God has said, I am giving you this message to share with the world. Can we do this? Can we be outwardly focusing people that when we leave the walls of this church, we come here to be built up so that we can scatter throughout the week and we can make a difference in this world? I told you about my dad at the beginning. As I continued to pray for my dad, some of those walls started coming down. God had to do some serious work. My dad got prostate cancer. And then as he was recovering from surgery from that, he had a heart attack and went into a triple bypass surgery. And the doctor said he doesn't have a good chance to live. For whatever reason, God chose to let him live. And my pastor came alongside of him. And my pastor prayed with my dad to receive Christ. And my dad continued to grow in his faith and he started sharing his faith with other people. And he started being used by God to be a conduit of this message with others. The guys that he was drinking with down at the club were now hearing him share with them what God had done in his own life. And as I went on to play professional golf, my dad was still my instructor. My dad still understood that I had a gift with golf and he wanted me to pursue that gift. But I was starting to wrestle with this whole ministry thing. Is God leading me down a different path? And I was down in Palm Springs seven years after my dad had had his heart attack. And one of those days, as we were practicing golf, my dad looked at me and he said, Steve, I now know why God gave me a second chance. I know why he gave me these last seven years. Number one, he's taught me how to love my family in the right way. And number two, he showed me the importance of sharing Christ with other people. I don't know what God has planned for you, Steve, but I want you to know that I give you my blessing. Those words changed my life because a week later, my dad got pneumonia and he died four days after that. That was the last meaningful conversation that I had with my father. He said, I've learned to love my family in the right way and I've learned the importance of sharing Christ with other people. You guys, we have a message that we need to take to the world. Do we really believe the good news? Has it changed our heart? Does the love of Christ compel us to share this with other people? If it hasn't, maybe you haven't let it change you. Let's be his ambassadors in this world and let's take this message to a hurting and lost world. Pray with me.
Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for this privilege, this responsibility that you've given each one of us. God, I pray for this congregation. I pray for each person in this place that they first would understand what it means to be in Christ, to be changed by you. And I pray that that love that you have given them would compel each one of us to take this message out and to share it with those around us. God, change the world. You're responsible for the results. May we just be faithful to be a part of the process. In Jesus' name, amen.